0: Blog Talk Radio. This is all about wine on Blog Talk Radio, the talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009. Featuring winemaker, seller master, vineyardist, and tasting expert,
1: Ron. Basically, what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast, and around the world. You know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that.
0: Share your question or comments using the live chat feature on our website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Again, that's www.allaboutwinebtr.com. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron.
1: There you are. Thank you, people. Thank you. Thank. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mike's not with us tonight. You just got me. You gotta listen to me tonight. We have things to talk about. We have things to tell you. We have stuff to do, but not Mike. Mike's at the the uh, Sun and Fun. The Sun and Fun is held every year in Lakeland, Florida. For those of you who are not in the area, Lakeland's like halfway between Tampa and Orlando. I'll give you an idea. It's in the middle of the state. It's a great event. They have planes, all sorts of little planes come into it. It's a fly-in is what it is more than anything. And they have, what's that? My intern just said something. Sun and Fun Fly-In. Yeah, the Sun and Fun Fly-In is the full name. But the Sun and Fun Fly-In. They have little planes fly into it. Nothing real big, you see. A bunch of small planes. And they have people talking about their planes on Like a car show. ...that you would attend, only this is with aeroplanes, little small airplanes. Uh, Bunch of different type, I'd tell you the type, but I have no idea. Uh, So, it is a fun event. Mike is into flying. He is uh, real big into that, and so he's spending time down at the Sun and Fun. So he won't be on with us tonight. He did get a chance to see the Blue Angels... And actually, he got a chance to meet the Blue Angels and talk with them for a little bit. So that sounds like a great time. Uh, these guys are fantastic. If you ever never seen the Blue Angels or any of those uh, aerobatic jet teams? It's well worth a trip to the local air show or something. Those things, Those guys are just fantastic. So he is there, and he will be doing that, although he will probably be doing his Sky Blue Radio Show tonight. So if you are in a mood for Mike, he will still be on his Sky Blue Radio Show. Uh, That's from 10 to midnight. And uh, you can check that out. But, after all that said and done, you have me. And I will be filling in on the latest news and information from the world of wine. First, I want to remind you that It is the Wine Spectator's Grand Tour coming up. We mentioned this last week. It is, We can go to the website uh, at uh, grandtour.winespectator.com. And it tells you all about it. Three cities and big events. The first one is in Las Vegas on Saturday, April the 27th. And that is from six to ten. Actually it's from seven to ten. Uh general admission mission is two hundred dollar. If you want to get the extra hour from six to seven, that's the VIP, it costs you an extra $125. That'd be three twenty-five. It's also coming to Chicago on Thursday, May the second. And that well, the Las Vegas one is at the Mirage. And you can get hotel reservations. Or they get discount hotel reservations at the Mirage. Then the next one is Chicago at the Navy Pier. Again, 325 VIP, 200 General Mission. And that is no hotel reserved for that, no discounts on that. You just got to make your way into Chicago and do your own thing there. But then the last one will be way down in Miami. Again, that is same hours, same prices. That's going to be at the Fontainebleau in Miami Beach, and the Fontainebleau does have reservations, room reservations available at discounts. So it's coming up to the end of the month, over 250, uh, uh, over 240 wines available with a 90 rating or higher a phenomenal event, you get a free Rito glass uh, and uh, that's just, you know, if you are in those areas or if you're taking a vacation in those areas or if you're inclined to travel for a big wine tasting, that is the one to do. So that's coming. Kind of a grand tour uh, by uh, Wine Spectator. And uh, we have a couple of Wineries that are having events, as always, we got to cover those. Castle Ridge Winery is having their uh, April Fourth today. Unless you are in Iowa, it's too late. It's from eleven to four. Uh, they had their peanut butter and jelly day uh, today. Is peanut butter and jelly day, by the way, and they had their peanut butter and jelly day today, and so you missed it. That wasn't today. National peanut butter and jelly day was on Tuesday, and they're celebrating it on the 4th. Hmm. I question the wisdom of that, but they have stuff there all the time. Castle Ridge Winery is located in Iowa at well, where's your Address here, Tassel Ridge. There it is. At uh, 1681 220th Street in Leighton, or Leighton Iowa. And you can uh, get a hold of them at Tassel Ridge. Well, Tassel Ridge Winery. What is your address? I I think it's just TasselRidgeWinery.com. But they have events all the time. So if you're ever in South, Actually, southeastern, southeast of Des Moines. So we're in southeastern Iowa. Check it out. Some great wines, and great place, and very, very friendly staff. So you need to check those out. And let's see, we've got a couple of others for you here. Delmonico Winery. This is in. uh, Oh, um, well, what is this? Is this a problem here? You may have to view this email in your browser. Review this email in your browser. I am and it is. All right, there we go. Del Monaco Winery. They are located in Baxter, Tennessee on six hundred lance drive uh web address delmonico winery dot com and uh you can contact them at delmonico uh delmonico winery they are having all sorts of puppies and kittens and bunnies o wine coming up uh gee, let me see the dates on this uh Toward the end of the month, they're having their adult Easter egg hunt. And uh, you'll have an opportunity to meet the wine bunny and get a picture with the wine bunny. Uh, adults now. I mean, you know, leave the kitties at home or with grandma and go out and drink sell some wine and have a picture taken with the wine bunny. And all sorts of good stuff going on for Easter there. They uh, have... Uh, barrel club and cellar club and just a bunch of stuff happening. Uh, wine slushies are in season again. So that is, again, Delmonico Winery and Vineyard 600 Lance Drive in Baxter, Tennessee. Uh, www.delmonicowinery.com 931 858 931-858-1170 And so they are coming up. We have Walsh Vineyards. Walsh Vineyards in. I know this, Pennsylvania. Am I right on that? Yes, I am. At 1599 Old Line Road in Mineham, Pennsylvania. Mine. Mannheim. I said Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Uh, Walsh Vineyards. And they have things scheduled for the month, the uh, five-course dinner, the General Sutter Inn five-course dinner uh, with the uh, uh, Mannheim wines on each course, great thing, I won't read you the the whole menu here, but oh my gosh, baby dip lettuce, asparagus, poached egg, one of the courses, uh, halibut, The second course is duck, confit, blueberry, gastric, pancake, whoa, Uh, wrap, baked, brie, strawberry bomb, and wines to go with each of them, five-course meal coming up, and that's going to be this Sunday from 6 to whenever, 5.30, the doors open, $85, that includes the tax and gratuities, Uh, you can get a hold of them at 717-626-2115 and uh, their reservations are still available a big five course meal with an award winning chef and all sorts of good stuff there so that's coming up this this Sunday we also have uh, oops, wrong one. where did I put them Oh, I know where I put them. I put them here. Uh, well, maybe I didn't. Huh. I think I lost them. I might have wiped them. I had a couple more to tell you about, too. But I think I might have eliminated them as I was going through stuff earlier. Right before the show. Let me double check here. There's nothing there. Nothing there. Nothing there. And I did. Well, as always, we have uh, what's that one meet up by Ocala? Mike no, would know. I don't know right now. Kind of can't think of the name. But they have events going out throughout the weekend and every week. So if you're in Florida, check them out also. So <laughs> I swear where I had those up here, and I was going to talk about them. But, oh well. All right. Um, what food is coming up this week? Well, oh, let, let me give you a quick quick trivia here. I've been skipping on the tributes the last couple of weeks. Let me give you some quick trivia. The names of many French wine regions have fascinating origins. Here, for example, are three. Champagne. This is from the Latin Campania. The term originally used to describe the countryside north of Rome. Bordeaux, from Abordelou, which means beside the waters. It's a reference to the fact that Bordeaux lies along the route of three large rivers and borders the Atlantic Ocean. And Provence, from Provincia Romana as the Romans called this part of their empire. So the name is derived from bones on both of them, it looks like. And another trivia here, what got your attention. When it comes to Castro, being in the wine business is not easy going. A relatively expensive fine red wine might be held by the winery in age for two to four years before it is released and sold. During that time, of course, the winery incurs numerous expenses, from paying employees to farming the vineyards to harvesting the grapes and bottling the wine. In Bordeaux, one way prestigious chateaus have gotten around the cash poor dilemma is by selling futures. Under the future system, customers buy a wine from retailers up to two years before it is actually released from the chateau. The customers. Customers base their decisions on the reputation of the Chateau and on early assessments of the vintage. Buying futures is, in effect, buying on speculation, which is a gamble. In the system of selling futures, are is the system of selling futures successful? For the most part, yes, especially in great vintages. Right after the magnificent Bordeaux Ventures of 2000, for example, a single San Francisco wine shop, the Wine Club, sold $1 million worth of Bordeaux Futures in a single day. Wow. So Futures, that's speculation. You hear about that off and on all the time, and it is a risky thing, but if you know what you're doing, and if you are hooked up to the right people that are talking to you about the Futures... It's it, it's you're hedging your bets, if you will. It's not not stacked against you. So, uh, what is the food for the next week? This is the fourth. I had to remind myself what date it was. Man, you're reminding me here. This is the fourth. Today is National Cordon Blue Day, also International Carrot Day. And National Romaine Noodle Day. Romaine noodles. Boy, those things are so full of sodium. I love them, but they're so full of sodium. Tomorrow, Caramel Day. Or Caramel, however you want to pronounce it. Also tomorrow is National Raisin and Spice Bar Day. And, oh, there's a good one. National Deep Dish Pizza Day is tomorrow. Hear that in here? Tomorrow, National Deep Dish Pizza. Saturday, National Caramel Popcorn Day. Also, International Carbonara Day. And New Beer's Eve. <laughs> New Beer's Eve. Uh, International Carbonara Day. I don't know what that is. If Mike were here, you he could look it up. Maybe my engineer can look it up for me. No. No? Okay. Well, so much for that. Um uh, well, let me look it up real fast here, since I am carbonera. Uh, carbonera. Uh, it's a pasta dish. Carbonera is an Italian pasta dish from Rome, made with egg, hard cheese, guanciale, uh, and pepper. The recipe is not fixed to a specific type of hard cheese or a specific type of pasta. The cheese is usually Romano, uh, Pecorino Romano cheese. So, there you go. That's what carbonara is, a pasta dish with hard cheeses. And you can put mushrooms in it. and Oh, all sorts of different things here on that. So, there you go. Finding out something new tonight with with food. Sunday is National Coffee Cake Day. It's also a National Beer Day, hence the New Beers Eve on Saturday. National Beer Day on Sunday. You can put down your wine and have yourself some beer on Sunday. But all the other days, open up a bottle of wine. Uh, And then Monday is National Empanada Day. Excuse me. Well, let's do it again. Empanada. That is, I think, a Spanish dish. ADA. Okay. Empama- empanada. Okay. That is. <coughs> excuse me. Uh, is a type of baked or fried. Pasty, consisting of pastry and filling, in Latin American cultures. The name comes from the Spanish verb empanar, and literally translates as "embreaded," that is, wrapped or coated in bread. So you can throw whatever you want inside. I guess there's no rules for that. It's just as long as it's wrapped in bread, and you can have yourself an empanada. Uh, yeah they got all sorts of images with different stuff it, it looks like uh, yeah uh, Spanish and wine region comes alive again in uh, pomada celebrations they always uh, in Brazil have it with wine so there you go Monday National Pumada Day uh, and you can Put some stuff some meat in it or whatever you want and have it with wine. So cool. sounds like a winner to me. And Tuesday, National Chinese Almond Cookie Day. And then Wednesday, National Cinnamon Crescent Day. A crescent roll only cinnamon. I don't believe I've ever had a cinnamon crescent roll. And then next Thursday, for those of you who want to think ahead, National Chai uh, National Cheese Fondue Day. That would be fun. She's fun doing a glass of wine, red or white. You can pair that with anything. So there you go. There's your food for this coming week. And open up a bottle of wine and compliment each and every one of them with the wine. All right. Let's see. We have different things to talk about today. Uh, Not a lot. Thank you. I've heard from some people that that have been listening to the program out there. Thank you. Appreciate it. I hope I'm teaching you some stuff about wine, and hope you are drinking lots of wine and enjoying it. So, uh, again, just thanks for tuning in. There is, well, this I noticed and caught my eye. I thought it was interesting. We've talked about the high plains of Texas quite a few times on the show here and how good of a wine-growing region it is and how, how popular it is for wines and how it's putting out some nice wines. But there is a problem there that we don't hear too much about. It's the fact that there are a lot of cotton fields around the vineyards. And because of this, which, you know, this area is actually traditionally cotton country, because of this, there is a conflict with the vineyards. Uh, they are, well, the, the, the drought has caused a lot of people to take out their cotton. I mean, that area has been under a drought or semi-drought for off and on for years. And they've been taking out the cotton and putting in vineyards. And so you can have one grower that has a big cotton field and right next to it, a new vineyard. But they are actually spraying the cotton fields, spraying them for worms and bugs and all sorts of stuff. And there's a drift that is going over into the vineyards. And... Is creating a problem. The uh, high Texas plain growers say that they've been hit with, by pesticide drift uh, from the cotton fields and it's carried by the wind into the vineyards, and the damage they're saying is devastating to a lot of their vines. The uh, farmers are saying they're experiencing deformed leaves, reduced crop yield, and even killing some of the vines. And the uh, Bobby Cox, who's a vineyard consultant and wine grower, and Lubbock says it's huge. The biggest threat has been to the farming grapes. Uh, it's the biggest threat to the farming grapes in over 40 years. They don't have a solution yet. They hope to be able to work together, and but they don't have a solution. Uh, the, um, uh, I'm sorry here, but I'm looking at some... The uh, University of Missouri suggests that drift of dicamba has damaged over 1 million acres of vulnerable crops across the country. And when asked how a big threat of pesticide drift is to wine grapes in Texas, they said it monitors the vineyards throughout the region. It says that it seems to drift damage is causing a damage to 90 to 95% of the vineyards in the region. Wow, uh, significant. The Texas Hill Country is the second largest AVA in Texas, and it is creating problems with the drift. The cotton growers are saying, you know, we're sorry that this is happening, but we cannot quit spraying our cotton. He said, we've got over 5 million acres of cotton, and there's just over 5,000 acres of grapes. So we really can't stop spraying. And the grape growers don't have the finances or wherewithal to sue and stop it, because with only 5,000 acres planted, they're not going to be able to beat the lawyers or the money involved in 5 million acres of cotton. So, Texas a and has done some trainings and proper herbicides. They are showing them how to do it. New types of sprays are coming out to contain it. Training them not to spray in wind, which is really a problem because in the Uh, Plains country of Texas, there seems to be almost a constant wind, Uh, not big, not large, not heavy, but enough to blow the sprays and all that. So it is an ongoing problem, if you will. It's something that they uh, aren't sure what is going to become of it, but it's something that we'll keep an eye on and see if we see anything else about it coming up in the coming months or years here. All right. Next one, oak. Why isn't all oak alike? Well, oak is different. We all know that oak is harvested. They're saying the Hungarian oak is actually the best oak out there right now. It is excellent for wine. Uh, We've always heard that French oak is the oak to use. The French oak is the one because of the way that the grain in the wood is and how it seals the the barrels so well. But they're saying that Hungarian oak is even better. Uh, The multiple factors that influence the wine taste, the grape type, altitude, latitude, climate, slope, angle, uh, soil type, wind direction. cultivation techniques, fermentation, length, aging, all these do have an influence. But if you're oaking, the factors of oak make a big difference too, including the type and age of oak, the grain tightness, the seating of the oak, the type of toasting on the oak, uh, surface areas to the volume ratio. All of this makes a difference in the final product and how the wine will taste, and when it finally gets into your your uh, premium wine glass or into your you know red plastic cup, it's going to affect the taste one way or the other. So French oak, Australian oak, California oak are all very important. As is well here in America, Texas oak and Missouri oak and Minnesota oak, all these make a different taste. Every one of them does have an influence. There are basically three types of oak, uh, two major categories, American oak and European oak. American oak species is the Corcus alba, and it grows on the American continent. Barrels made... From this wood generally provide a strong aroma and flavor to the wine, including uh, coconut and vanilla. If you pick up a strong vanilla or coconut, you know, look and see if it's American oak. European oak includes two species, which each give a distinct characteristic. There's Corcus robur and Corcus petraea. Uh, One of them is, uh, what is it, pedunculate oak, and the other one is sisal oak. Uh, They refer to these as Robur and Petria. And here's two samples. First, most European oak forests include a mixture of both. It's not just one oak or the other. And secondly, Robur generally provides more heft to the wine, while Petria gives more what they call an elegance. And uh, the patria has higher levels of sweetness and tighter grains and slower growth, which can boost the aromatic concentration. So the different type of oak you're using from Europe will give you completely different flavors than American oak. And that's why it's important for winemakers to test their oak and see what they want and what ones they are satisfied with, and which ones they think is best for their wines. European oak, and more than anything now, Hungarian oak is becoming more and more popular. The, uh, it's close to the uh, Tokay region. The mountains are very young geographically, and so the steep slopes and the soil thickness uh, is a little bit thinner and so the climate gives you cool winters and hot, dry summers. And these conditions basically are harsh, and it creates a a better oak for the wine. So it's the challenging conditions which tends to give it the taste that uh, all winemakers are demanding. It is a uh, not a heavy harsh taste, but one that that adds an intricacy to the wine that you don't find in some American oaks. Hungary sells 35,000 to 45,000 barrels a year, of which California purchases about 40% of that. Spain and Italy are also purchasers uh, from that, and there's also clients in Australia, China, South Africa and other nations of the world, not so much as the ones I just mentioned. The high use of land in Hungary results in on only 21% of the territory being covered in forest, and that's just over a million acres, which is no greater than the size of the state of Rhode Island and smaller than Delaware, about a half the size of the island of Corsica. So it's not a big area, but it is putting out some well seeked after oak barrels. Uh general knowledge he's saying, uh, uh the a specialist in the barrels the uh, noted the general knowledge about the barrel world is very limited and they try to share that knowledge and keep the winemakers and opinion makers more informed and Oak from Hungary is one of the oaks that has became very popular and very sought after because of its characteristics that it passes on. And also it's becoming you know, rarer and rarer, which is something that's going to cause the price to go up, which in turn will cause your wine to go up. Which is always, always a bad thing. Okay. uh, Next one here is as soon as I get to it here. Uh, There we go. This caught my eye because we have been talking about biodynamic wines for the past. You know, a couple of three weeks, uh, bring it up and different things. Felton Road, Biodynamics. Mm-hmm. Felton Road is located in New Zealand. He said, Biodynamics takes seven years to be reflected in the vineyard. Seven years. You plant a grapevine, it takes you five years to get your full crop. He's talking seven years for biodynamics to get your full impact. Uh, they explained that while it takes three years to convert land to biodynamics, vines take seven years to properly demonstrate the change. He quoted, it took us three years to convert 32 hectares of vines, but it, I really felt it took seven years for the, it to manifest itself into the vines the 3-year certification is more like a cleansing period as the vines adopted the changing nutrient source. So, uh, he goes on, I was essentially a bit scared of the voodoo, but what I like about biodynamics is that you're focused on your whole property being an enclosed ecosystem, rather than just the vineyard itself. Mm-hmm. This is what a lot of people say about it, it just it becomes a, a completely different Look and approach uh, when you go biodynamic. You know, we converted to biodynamics in the late 1990s. It wasn't a popular decision. I was probably a bit arrogant at the time and in insisting that we change, but I'm very glad we did. He says, I don't mind all the mumble jumble. The climate is changing radically, and whenever I travel to, to wherever I travel to work, I see it changing. For example, we in New Zealand had lots of rain this year, and it seemed like we had 10 years' worth of rain for in two weeks. I get irritated by the fact that chemical farming is called conventional. That's bullshit, he says. We're the ones that are truly farming conventionally. Biodynamics, he saying, is conventional. That being said, when things get tough, to spray or go against the practices. However, it's a matter of principle. We believe we have to stick to what we've got. And so they don't spray. They don't do anything. There's a theory that biodynamic and organic farming makes the skins of grapes tougher while flavor maturity can be achieved at lower sugar levels. So I've never heard that before. But that's what he's saying. Uh, the uh, 2015 benches was released with an alcohol... By a volume level of 8.44 at the winery, um, which is, well, I didn't see what grape it was or, oh, the reasoning. Uh, so, uh, so, the alcohol oscillates between 8.5 and 9.5, so it doesn't jump up real high on, on his biodynamic vineyards. He said that he can definitely tell the difference in the taste of the grapes of the biodynamic as opposed to organic and especially to conventional farming. So, you know, seven years. The organic wine growers was established in 2007 in New Zealand in 2007. And by 2017, 10% of New Zealand wineries had organic certifications to make organic wine with 12% of all growers' Boosting an organic vineyard, um, organic winemakers of New Zealand now have 51 fully certified wineries and 19 part-certified wineries. They aim to increase it to uh, 20% in the near future. So, biodynamics is not easy. It but. And he's not the first that I've read about. Not the first that I... I, Well, we talked about biodynamic winery in California. Every one of them has said the same thing. It makes a difference in the taste. And it also makes you... uh, uh, Well, I just looked at something here. It also not only makes a difference in the taste, but also the, the overall aspect of bionamics is a lifestyle that uh, they wouldn't change and that they continue to use and cultivate. Um, let's see. I'm looking for... I don't have it. That's why I can't find it. That could be the reason... Uh, do, 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 do. yeah, I know, I know. Well, yeah. Uh, oh, this is from here. This is one of them that I'm looking for. That I've I've got these notes here, and I've got the different sites I need to pull up and. If the notes aren't matching the sites, it throws me all off wacky here. So that's just what's happening right now. Okay, here we go. This is this one here. So uh, China. We're hearing how big China is and how much China is improving and how well China is. Well, China wine production has seen the sharpest drop in recent memory with a 37.16% plunge to 6.2 million hectoliters in 2018. That's down from 2017's 10.1 million hectoliters and it's a substantial drop uh, over a third drop in production. Uh, a tremendous drop in production in Chinese wines. 2017 China was ranked as the world's seventh biggest wine producer. But the much lower than expected production of 2018 saw it slide down to ninth place, uh, just out of Portugal's 5.3 million hectoliters, and they're sitting at 6.29. So, China's wine production has been declining for five straight years, but this is the biggest drop so far. Uh, this would also make China one of the only the top are three top wine-producing countries, including Australia and South Africa, that witnessed a drop in 2018. Everybody else went up on production, and uh, Australia, because of the droughts there and the wildfires, they're they're battling in the wineries there. The drop is likely to discourage smaller producers within China, which over the years uh, in uh, the provinces where they're making wine, some of the big ones have stepped up and has been buying out. Figures for bottled wine, bulk wines, and sparkling wines uh, or country ranking have not been revealed by Chinese customs in, yet in a rare move this year. The four of China's top five importing countries include France, Australia, Italy, and Spain saw dips in their export value because of the drop of Chinese production. Australia's wine production dropped by nine percent after two bumper harvests in South Africa's production fell to nine point five million hectoliters, a drop of twelve percent due to severe drought in South Africa last year. And they're both south of the equator, so their years are, are winters up here in the north. If anybody's listening to us in Australia or anywhere else, which we do have listeners all over, uh They're Mm -hmm. heading into their winter now. China has more than 1,000 SC-certified wineries across the country from the biggest wine-producing region in Shandong Peninsula in eastern China to the country's premier wine region, uh, Nanzia in uh, northwestern China to Yunnan in southeastern China. So they are... spread out throughout the country but they are not producing as much so I and as much as we've been hearing about China lately and all of the wines that they're drinking and all the uh, things that's been going on with uh, the uh, millennials and the drinking and all that stuff there then it is okay, this one's one or two Well yeah. Again I'm trying to find my things here. Uh I know me. Mm-hmm. Oh, here we go. This is what I'm gonna tell you. I knew I'd find it in here. It's just you know, a bunch of interesting little things for you tonight that uh, you can throw out at your next party. The Wine Origins Alliance. Okay, we've talked about this, the the new new alliance, and we've talked about the website for it and all that in the past. Of in, uh, since 2005, the Wine Origins Alliance efforts have led to increased attention around the protection of wine place names. And we, we've discussed this and about how they're doing it. Well, in early 2018, the Wine Origins Alliance released a consumer survey that found that 94% of American wine drinkers support laws that would protect consumers from misleading wine labels. Uh, The survey was conducted February 6th to the 13th, 2018, interviewed 800 American wine drinkers, and the group also released a short film featuring winemakers explaining why it's important to have their names recognized and how their wines are unique to the region. Uh, Yamanashi is the first recognized geographical indication by the Japanese government. Yamanashi has joined the wine Origins Alliance, since 1874, Yamanashi has produced wines, and actually they cannot be produced anywhere else in the world, and so they want their name protected, and they want them to be recognized, and they figure a good way to do it is to tell their story uh, with outside the Japanese borders and to uh, governments around the world, and so they joined the Wine Origins Alliance. And that's a good way to do it. You know, they, you know, protect my name. You can't use uh, Yamanashi on anything but here. The uh, other one that joined it, the home of the oldest AVA, American Viticulture Area in the United States, Missouri, is now a member of the Wine Alliance Uh, of Wine Origins Alliance. They joined also. uh, They are uh, part of, uh, this. says we are proud to join alongside our colleagues from around the United States and indeed from around the world in the important fight to protect region names and not to let them be abused. So Missouri and Yamanashi are now two new members of the Wine Origins Alliance. Now, the Wine Origins Alliance, uh, previously known as the Joint Declaration to Protect Wine Place and Origin, but it's now their Wine Origins Alliance, works to ensure wine region names are protected and not abused or miscommunicated to consumers worldwide. And then they've got a whole stack of members now. I'm not going to go through and read all the members, but it's all the corners of the Earth, as if the Earth has corners. But All regions around the globe are members, and adding more all the time, but now Missouri and Yamanashi are two new members of the Wine Origin Alliance. You can look that up too, Wine Origin Alliance, uh, interesting site. It really does. It tells you about all the different wine regions. If you look it up, you'll see a link, and it's, it's information on all the wine regions and everything. It's a good site. Uh, if you have any questions about the regions and stuff, it's a good way to check it out there. So do that. Okay. And let's see this next one here. Uh, behind the scenes. Oh, this is something we talk about behind the scenes at a wine competition. Um, this this was fun. Uh, it uh, this is from Sip Northwest. It's, uh no, I don't want to subscribe. I get but Sip Northwest. It. goes in you know what time is it you know can't tell. I Well this is the wine drinking competition. competitions you win medals. People are all aware of that. Uh, you know, you know, oh, you have a medal or the what the websites brag about it. Oh we have We have gold and all this other stuff and everything. What? And we know it goes to competition and all that. But inside, you've seen them talk about it, and you've seen it put on the labels and on menus and in tasting rooms and all over the place, award-winning. But how are they award-winning? They went behind the scenes of the annual McMinnville Wine and Food Classic, SIP, to see how this 26-year-old Oregon wine competition, which benefits St. James School, operates. And from the language used and, the, and how the judges look at it and, and everything, this is, this is a little inside look to wine competition. Okay, The language, the terms that are thrown around regarding wine competition are probably terms that you're not familiar with. Uh, Things like prime your palate and and different things. So here you go. Wine competition Uh, in definition. An organized event in which qualified judges rate different wines submitted by individual wineries. Typically on each wine's own merit or based on prescribed criteria. Usually they're categorized by the type of wine. And that is the most common ways that they do it. The type of wine is in the categories, and you're judged by the wines. Panel, a grouping of judges that evaluates a flight of wines based on an established scoring system. Flights is a grouping of wines, typically organized in like-minded stalls or varietals. The scoring system, usually numerical, Scoring systems are how the judges evaluate and rate different wines to ultimately determine the highest scoring, thus highest ranking and meddling wines. Blind tasting, the most common judging route for wine competitions. This method of judging informs the judge of the varietal plus sometimes vintage and designated appellation. But, not the producer. This way is to avoid a bias. So they'll say this wine is uh, one of, say, the Texas Plains. Uh, and it's a uh, uh, sometimes they can say this is a 2018 or 2013 or whatever from Texas Plains. And it's a Cabernet. So you got to judge it from there, which is a lot of information. Uh So that's basic language terminology of what we're talking about here. (coughs) Excuse me. The wines breaking records for the competition. Fifty-nine Oregon wineries submitted to the 2019 Mac Classic, totaling in 208 wines. There's a handful of sparkling. Rosé and Dessert submissions sprinkled into the majority. There were 51 white wines, 18 of which were Chardonnay, and 139 reds, 69 of those being Pinot Noir. So this is Willamette Valley after all. Okay, so you're going to get so many Pinot Noirs. The requirements for submitting wineries were simple. It must be made of Oregon grapes and made in Oregon. That's it. Okay, so this competition is one. Now this is this is a small competition. I mean, you can get competitions that, like, Finger Lakes competition. They bring in wines from around the world. Uh, so this is a small one. The judging—it's all about the process. They look at the judging panels, the submissions and participants, and the marking components. They take all the wines and put them in correct order to be tasted and. Sh- Structured the tasting for the judges to best evaluate it. So they know if a wine's a little bit lighter, they're not going to put that at the front of the tasting. They spread across three tables. The hand-selected judges uh, assessed the preliminary flights and scored without discussion. They don't do anything. they just individuals. Each wine was bagged to conceal its identity, and poured table size, so the judges were assured of a blind assessment. They don't pour it right in the glass in front of them, they hide it. Judges were instructed to evaluate each individual wine on its own merit, not to judge comparatively against other wines placed in the same flight, which is difficult to do, but that's how it's approached. Then they're scored from 1 to 12, 1 at below expectations, 12 at exceptional. And then judges total scores, but move the wines into the final medal rounds. So as they put all the scores together, the wines, and then they move it. This final round brought in all potential gold medalists to be raised to a double gold, kept as is or demoted to silver. So once you pass the first one, you're going into the, the final round, which can really you know, assess it better. Uh, the From there, Best of Show and Best of Category wines were awarded in open discussion among the panelists. So then they get, start discussing about it. But basically, you're, you're scoring it, and then they evaluate with everyone else in the group of the wines, not where they let the judges discuss it, but it's also you know, the scores that they put together. All right? Now, tenured Oregon wine palates joined a number of international and regional palates to judge the Mac Classic. Uh, These are different big names in the region and in wine that do the judging. Most of the time, people know what they're doing. They're not going to jump out in the street and say, come in here, we want you to judge this, because people say, oh, I like this. Oh, I like this. Believe me, it's if you don't know what you're looking for, you're not going to find it. And I, I proved that in my wine classes when I had a blind tasting of wines, and I would give it to people, and everybody would go, oh, I love this. Well, you know, what do you love about it? Then when you start breaking it down, you start looking at different aspects of it. They don't realize that it's not that great anyway. They just like the taste of it, therefore they're giving it good scores. Judges know to break it down from the very beginning. It's not something that they just say, oh, I love this, you know, so therefore I'm going to give it a good score. So that's that's the difference. These, these people, uh, they meet expectations of the people who are submitting the wines. And this is important. You're going to have yourself a panel of judges that will will meet the expectations of the people who are submitting the wines. You don't want a bunch of people in there that are saying, oh, this is good, so let's give it a gold. This is good. It, it, it gives you the ability to say, I want a gold or a double gold and be proud of it because it actually passed the tasting of the people who are knowledgeable in that area. Uh, sometimes, it just, uh, sometimes water and bread products can't quite save the day for the exhaustive palate, so uh, some judges reach you for an unsweetened iced tea. They say iced tea has a tendency to clean the palate, and it, uh, it is a fresh taste in the mouth, something different, and so you're not getting the intensity of the uh, wine lingering in there to clean it out. And it does as well as breads and... and water does. Uh, Bread does a good job, but sometimes bread will interfere. And the verdict. After the finals, 38 wines received gold medals and a short list of 10 wines were awarded double gold medals. Uh, The uh, one person who submitted says, you don't know how harsh the judge is going to be. There are some better quality wines than others with a group of very experienced judges. And they, in this competition, narrowed it down to four wines with the ultimate bragging rights for the competition, uh, the best in show and the best in category and the best Chardonnay and the best white, and the best red, and all these were awarded. All the wines submitted will be Went on display they usually do this at any competition they put the wines on display and tells you about and all that at the end of the day the competition is resolved a week long awards party Uh, and that's at the end which all the benefits go to St. James School that's a private school in downtown McMinnville and so This is a little insight to judging of wines. It doesn't, it's a a very thorough examination of the wines. So if you see people with certificates on the wall, most of the time it is something for them to be proud of. And I say most of the time simply because there are some competitions out there, and I, I do know for a fact, there are some competitions out there that will give you a, a medal regardless of what you've submitted or what, what you have and all that. And they do that simply because they want lots of wines in the competition. And so they'll guarantee a medal if you enter the show. But it gets to be expensive. The shows get to be expensive if you're entering into a lot of them. It starts becoming... I, I've talked about the cost of entering a lot of shows and it, it can be uh, mind-bogglingly expensive if you are entering a bunch of them because the cost to put the, the, well, everything. I mean, they charge anywhere from $25 an entry up to 250 depending on the show. And it does go for a good cause. I mean, you know, it's not like it goes in their pockets and they're saying, oh, look, we have we have all this money now. It actually supports the most, all wine shows I know of have a cause that they support and that they donate the money to. So it's a good cause. But it can get rather expensive. And because it's expensive, some of them say, hey, you're going to get a, you're going to get a ribbon. You're going to get something out of this. Which, you know, I, I don't think is right. But that's how some of them work. So, wow, it's 8 o'clock. What, uh, let's go through a couple more trivia here before I say goodbye for tonight. And i uh, give you some things to... A couple, three things to think about here. I'll get this stack of trivia cards here. Um, we know wine is good for your mood. Now research suggests it may be good for your brain. A study by Dutch researchers reported in the prestigious British medical journal Lancet presents the theory that moderate amounts of alcohol, defined as one to three drinks per day, may stimulate brain proteins and improve memory and attention. The Dutch scientists focused their research on the relationship between alcohol consumption and dementia in 5,395 adults 55 years of age or older. Their findings revealed that compared to abstention, moderate drinking was associated with lower risk of dementia. This also includes Alzheimer's. Of course, like most scientists looking at the relationship between health and alcohol consumption, these researchers stress the critical importance of the word moderate. As most of us know, without any scientific help, why a little wine may be good for you, a lot, is not. So, uh, again, another thing, saying that, that wine is, is good for you, that wine is going to... Going to help your brain. It's going to improve a bunch of stuff. Man, yeah, we know that. We we are wine drinkers. We know that all the time. Now the water. New York's downtown Ritz Carlton claims to be the first restaurant in the United States to have a water sommelier. And what exactly does a water sommelier do? Apparently, something similar to what a wine sommelier does. Recommend what to drink while you're savoring. Say duck. In case you're wondering, the Rich Carlton's water. Somebody suggests a light sparkling water with duck, so as not to overpower the delicate flavors of the meat. Uh, I oh well. uh, I suppose if you're fancy enough, you need to have somebody tell you what water to drink with something. I I don't know. I, I. I'd rather have wine with it anyway. Give me a nice GMA with my duck, and I'll be happy. And let's do one more trivia here. And I think one, yeah. In Italy, there are hundreds of Entechi, a sort of wine bar, wine shop, or wine library rolled into one, virtually all of which have historically been frequented by men. But it's not just men anymore. Italian women increasingly make up the wine bar clientele, and it appears these women know what they like. According to a survey conducted in 2011 and reported in La Nazione, women prefer great red wines of structure in contrast to the common notion that Italian women want the gentle, sexy, soft, Style of whites. Also, according to the survey, women who patronize in Tachi are an impressive group. More than 90% possessed a diploma or degree and it had income levels characterized as a medium to high. As far how Italian women make their wine choices, the survey noted that packaging and brand recognition were key factors. The one thing that wasn't an issue, price. So there you go. Uh, Brand is a key factor, and sense of place and the searching of origin, that's important stuff. So I think I'm done for the night. Mike will maybe should be back next week, and so we will uh, get everybody back together, get the band back together next week. Hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope you will tune in uh, next week. That's going to be April the 11th. What happens on April 11th? I think something... Well, besides being National Cheese Fondue Day, I don't know. I think that's it. But April 11th, next week, we'll be back here. Tell your friends about it. Share us. Pass us on. Let everybody know... uh, about all about wine. We appreciate you listening, and thanks for those who have tuned in recently and started to listening to the show. We do appreciate that greatly. And I guess that's it for the night. So we'll see you next week. Be safe out there and drive safe and uh, drink lots of wine, and we'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine.